us begin the evening with uh, prayer, and then we'll jump into the book and into your outline. Lord Jesus, thank you for this evening. Thank you for our time together. I thank you for these who have joined us live and for those who are joining us on live stream. I pray, God, that you will uh, speak uh, very clearly uh, through what we look at in both Scripture and in the context of this book as it relates to Father Truth. And we pray that you will use it, Father, to build us up uh, in uh, our faith and help us to walk deeper with you as disciples in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, one of the things I try to do each year when I select a book, and I began thinking about this months out, and actually I have to tell you, as I'm reading all through the year, I'm thinking about uh, what book will I, I teach in January. And uh, I always, my goal is always to select a book that I believe is disciple-oriented. In other words, it's something that's going to build a believer up or at least cause a believer to think deeply about their faith. And I had lim- I narrowed this down to a couple of books. And finally, uh, I'm just to be honest, I was praying and I just had a strong sense this is the book uh, to use in, in my prayer time. I don't know that Jesus was specifically saying that. I just suddenly, one day, I couldn't make my mind up between the two books I was looking at. And uh, then one morning, it just became crystal clear to me. And so, hence, The Unsaved Christian by Dean and Sarah. Dean and Sarah is a pastor down in Tallahassee. And uh, he is, um, I guess Dean is probably in his late 30s, maybe early 40s. I'm just guessing uh, at that. I just know he's younger than me. And, uh, but the book uh, is a, a powerful uh, a book, and I think you will enjoy it. Tonight, the first four chapters. Next week, I'm going to try to do another four chapters. So that's kind of how we'll pace ourselves. And if you want to stay up with uh, what we'll be talking about each week, then uh, I would encourage you to try to read uh, four chapters. So we'll do four chapters, four chapters, four chapters, and three chapters is how uh, we'll uh, uh, do this book. A lot of content. That's why you need to read the book and not just uh, count uh, totally on what I'm going to share. But I'm going to pull highlights out of each chapter and share those with you. But I want to do something to begin that I've done each year uh, in the book study, and that is I want to share a a brief passage with you uh, that relates to the content or the the information that's in the book that we're going to be looking at. So I'm not going to ask you to stand tonight, but if you brought your Bible, I want you to open it up to Matthew chapter 15. And um, and let me set up the passage for you, and then I want to read to you just a couple of three verses. Uh, The passage relates to the Pharisees and the scribes, and as you know, toward the end of Jesus, uh, uh, what we call his earthly ministry, he was uh, constantly being challenged by these uh, Pharisees and the scribes uh, to, uh, in regard to the traditions and to the commandments of the, the law. And they had taken the laws of God and they had blown them way out of proportion. I mean, it was unreal what they had done, the number of sub-laws they had created from God's laws. And it was just, it's almost comical, really. Thousands upon thousands that they uh, created from the law that God had given. And they were always looking for a way to catch Jesus and violating their traditions, which they had, they had uh, sacramentalized. They had made their traditions 
uh, spiritual things that uh, had to be kept. Now, we all have seen that when that happens in a church or in a, in a Christian organization, but they treated it like it was from God, and they expected Jesus to do the same thing, and Jesus, of course, didn't fit their mold, and uh, he knew, by the way, Jesus knew what a violation of the law was. Hello? Since he was the author of the law, he certainly understood that. So they're always trying to catch him, and they start asking him questions, and then they focus on the disciples. Why do your disciples not keep the traditions or the, the commandments, that sort of thing? And, uh, and then he kind of threw it back at him. He said, well, why do you break the commandments? And he used a particular commandment uh, that related to taking care of parents, and he said, why is it that instead of honoring your father and mother by taking care of them in their old age, what you do is you, uh, you declare the law of Coram. Coram was a law that they had created, essentially, and then they uh, uh, sacramentalized it so they could call it spiritual. And Coram said this, if you, uh, uh, rather than, it, you take, let's say you have uh, financial resources that you could use to take care of your parents, but they didn't really want to do that. They didn't want to use their uh, money or their resources to take care of their parents. They would declare it quorum, which meant dedicated to God. So they would say, well, everything that I have is dedicated to God. It was really just a way to hold on with greed to what they had instead of having to assume the responsibility of honoring their father and mother. So Jesus throws that back. He says, why do you, won't you keep this command? And he called them on, on that sort of thing. And then that leads to the passage I want you to see. Verse 7, he says, you hypocrites. He tells you, you're hypocrites. You, he said, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And so this is one of the ways that he characterized them. He characterized them as a brood of vipers. He characterized them as whitewashed tombs. And right here, he calls them hypocrites. He said, you're, you're just, you're, you guys are hypocrites. And he said, because the, what you expect in others, you don't really live out yourself. You declare, well, here's the, what you ought to be doing, but in reality, you're not doing uh, the very things that you're expecting others to do. And so he, he says, uh, you honor me with your lips. And here's one of what I would begin by saying. Let me just give you three thoughts from the, these uh, couple of verses. The first thing I would give you is he talks about a spoken faith. What he's saying to them, your belief is spoken. It, it's something you say, you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. Uh, they talked a good game. Uh, that's the bottom line. They knew what to say. So they had this spoken kind of faith. They could say the right things. And by the way, because they had memorized the laws of God, it was hard to carry on a conversation uh, with them or to argue a point. Jesus could because he knew their hearts and he knew what the truth was, but most people couldn't argue with them. Most people couldn't respond to them. And because they held such positions of authority, uh, it, it, there, any kind of debate with them uh, was a losing effort, but not with Jesus. And he called them what they were, and he said, you have a spoken faith. There are a lot of people today, as I mentioned this morning in my message, that have a spoken faith. They know the right thing to say. That's why when they do a survey around the country, and it's been this way for years, and they ask people, do you believe in God? It's amazing the high percentage of people say they believe in God. It's a spoken faith. 
As I said, however, recent studies show that only 56% of those who claim to believe in God believe in the God of the Bible. So it's a spoken faith. It is saying the right thing. Uh, it is a cultural kind of faith. And by the way, here in the South, I mean, it's hard to find somebody if you ask them, do you believe in God, doesn't believe in God. Hello? And that's part of the premise of his book. He, he, he uh, uh, discovered the hard reality of uh, pastoring uh, in the Bible Belt. And that is, in the Bible Belt, um, it's hard to get people saved because everybody thinks they're saved already. And so um, that's, what, that's what was going on here. There was a spoken faith. The second thing uh, you might add is there, there was a broken faith. Not just a spoken faith, but a broken faith. He says, you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. If all you have is a spoken faith, then you've got a broken faith. Because um, their hearts are the place... Uh, they most needed to evidence that they had a relationship with God, and there was no evidence of that, which is why he calls them hypocrites. They spoke the faith, but their hearts were far away from God. Uh, somebody said, rightfully so, many years ago, that, that there are a lot of people that are going to end up in hell, and the problem is about 16 inches. The difference is between here and here. And that's what the Pharisees and scribes had. And I believe, unfortunately, today, many people in our world that confess Christ, they have a spoken faith, but it is also a broken faith because it's not complete. It hasn't, their life hasn't been transformed. Uh, Christ doesn't reside in their heart. He only uh, resides in their head. Uh, just like as I spoke this morning, the, the Bible says the demons believe and they tremble. They have an understanding, a knowledge of who God is, but they have no relationship with God. And that's what Jesus was saying here, that their faith was broken because it was not a genuine uh, relationship with God. And then that leads to the third thing that he speaks about. He says, in vain do they worship me. So watch this. They had a spoken faith, and because they had a spoken faith, they had a broken faith, and they evidence their broken faith with a token faith. He said, in vain do you worship me. So they went through the motions. It was a token thing. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't a, a, a heart of worship. They were just going through the motions. They were going through the actions of worship. And I have to tell you, we have to be careful that, and, and guard ourselves because if you've, been, um, if you've uh, been in church for years and years, you know how to do the church thing. You know how to go through the motions, right? And so we have to be very careful that when we come into this place, it is not a token kind of expression. Okay, I'm doing this because I know I ought to do this. The Pharisees and the scribes, everything they did, they did as a kind of a token expression. They were far more concerned about themselves than they were about God or worshiping God or listen to this or helping other people know or worship God. And so uh, it's a good passage for us to start this book with because this whole premise is there are many people who are much like this. I don't know that you would call them Pharisees, but the same kind of characteristics often uh, are reflective in their life. They have this kind of spoken faith that doesn't, isn't reflected in their hearts. And uh, then they just go through the motions of uh, faith. And after a while, by the way, we can get pretty good at the motions. So with that in mind, let's jump in. Chapter 1. Chapter 1 is called Help Them Get Lost. Help Them Get Lost. And I want you to bring your books each week. 
and keep it with you because I will refer two or three times in the course of our talk to pages that I want you to turn to as I'll share some things from those pages. But you'll also notice in your, um, on the outlines that I provided for you that you'll see a number in parentheses. You're smart enough, I think, to know, but that represents the page that either that direct quote came from or that idea is expressed, okay? So that's what those numbers represent. First of all, he starts off uh, at the, uh, uh, page 11 at the start of chapter 1 with a quote that I love from Sinclair Ferguson that says, Thinking that I deserve heaven, thinking that I deserve heaven is a sure sign that I have no understanding of the gospel. Did you catch that? If I think I deserve it, I've earned it, then I have no understanding of the gospel because the fact is, the gospel message is you can't save yourself. The gospel message is that you can't earn favor with God. Paul addressed it in Romans. Paul addressed it in Ephesians chapter 2, and he said, By uh, grace are you saved through faith. It is not of yourself. It is a gift of God. So no man can boast. What does he mean when he says so no man can boast in that Ephesians 2, 8, 9? What he's talking about is if you could earn it, you could boast about it, right? You could walk around and say, well, I earned mine. How'd you get yours? But the fact is no man can earn their salvation because there are none who are righteous. No, not one. No one. The heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? Uh, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So it is, and I'll address this a bit in the, the series I just started this morning in another message, but it is, um, it is a cultural kind of faith today that believes on some level that you can, if, you, if you're just good enough, God's going to let you into heaven. And um, and we'll hear this a lot of times uh, at memorial services. Uh, you'll hear people saying, well, they were such a good person. Now, they may have been a good person, but the question isn't, are they good? The question is, are they saved? And I have to tell you, when I was young in ministry, I would often do uh, funerals and uh, memorials for people that I didn't know very well. And uh, I, I rarely do that unless I know enough of the background of the person or through the family and know that they are, are, are saved. Because what I don't want to do is get up and try to preach them into heaven. Well, they sure were good. They did a lot of good things. And uh, there is something in, especially Bible Belt, I think it is true across the nation, where people uh, have come to believe that goodness is good enough to get you into the kingdom of God. And uh, the fact is, no one's been good enough. How many times does it take to sin to make a sinner? One. Once you sin, you become a sinner. In sin did my mother conceive me, the Scripture says. And I was born into this world in, with its sin nature, uh, the Scripture points to. So we can't earn it. And I, I reiterate that. I, my guess is you're all sane people. You know that. But uh, surprisingly, there are many people in our churches today who've come to accept this idea, well, if a person is good, you know, I don't know if they ever, they ever received Christ, but, but you know, they were, they were really good. They, they did, I mean, they'd do anything for you. All of that is noble and well and honorable, but it's not enough to get you into heaven. Does that make sense? And that's what Sinclair Ferguson is pointing to. Uh, number two on your outline, the, the Bible Belt 
in the Bible Belt, many people think they're Christians and God is fine with them because they are not atheists. I love that. Uh, that's on page 12. I love that. Many people in the Bible Belt, we live in the Bible Belt, they think they are good with God just because they're not atheists, because they affirm uh, God and they affirm uh, uh, even the moral values of, of Scripture. I affirm that. I believe those things. And they think, well, God must be okay with me. I'm not an atheist. Number three, cultural Christianity is more about Christian traditions than biblical truth. It doesn't see the implications of sin and separation from God. Now, the series I began today, I hope you'll be here for all of it, is really about um, the mess that cultural Christianity has created for many. And the, the fact is that cultural Christianity seems to be more about, well, I, you know, the, the things that are traditional in the Christian faith or the things that, that I do, the things that are more about those traditions and biblical truth. And by the way, we sometimes say, yeah, that seems to be a, a more current uh, um, uh, uh, representation of the, the generations growing up. But I want to tell you something, be careful, because you can, you can be an old-timer in the faith and have elevated your traditions above biblical truth. It's amazing. As a pastor, of course, you see things like that. I, don't, I haven't seen a lot of that in, in just a couple months, 20 years here with you. I haven't seen a lot of that here, but there are, there are times. Uh, for example, let me give you one. I hadn't been here as your pastor very long, and um, on Sunday nights in particular, I didn't wear a tie when it, from the very get-go when I came here. Now, the, some people will be horrified to see what I'm preaching in, but but the fact is, we sometimes misrepresent things that, and, tr- and sacramentalize things that it's, it, it's not biblical. And so I didn't wear a tie. And I won't ever forget, one of the ushers, I've been here maybe three months, and on Sunday nights, I didn't preach in a tie. I wore a sport coat and, and uh, uh, you know, and, and nice slacks, that's all, but I didn't wear a tie. And uh, one of the ushers came to me uh, on, on a particular Sunday and said, Pastor, on a Sunday night, Pastor, you ought to see this note somebody handed me. And, and, and he said, the note said, I will not be returning to Ridgecrest because pastors should wear ties. <laughs> now, I can tell you bizarre things. I can tell you about how I received a note that I should wear only black shoes when I preach. I, I got a lot of stories that are just where you just want to go, really? What passage in Hezekiah did you find that in? Hezekiah's not really a book, okay, just so you didn't get thrown off. But, um, but sometimes we, we sacramentalize things because they've come out of our tradition and the way we believe it's just supposed to be done, and it's because we don't know our Bible or we don't understand these very things. Um, we used to, uh, we don't have to now, but um, we used to keep a piece of felt on top of the, the grand piano. Did y'all know that? We used to keep a piece of felt on the grand piano. And, um, and I used that as an illustration many years ago. We were making a change in something. I said, now we have this uh, felt on the piano here, and we have a very spiritual reason for having it there. And that reason is the lights, the way they used to shoot down on the piano, 
reflected off of the high-gloss finish on it and blinded some people in the choir. So we put a piece of felt on there. How long was that felt on there, Tim? A hundred years? You've been here that long. (laughs) It was a long time, wasn't it? For, for that reason. So the light wouldn't reflect into the choir members' eyes, okay? Well, I, I get that. No problem with that. But I said, you know what? If you take the felt off, if, we, if we're not careful, one day we might say, oh, I remember the day when we used to have felt on the piano. And they took it off. They went liberal. They took it off, that felt, off the piano. We sacramentalize things. You see what I'm saying? We turn it into something that God never turned it into. And that's what we have to be careful. That is a sign of cultural Christianity. We take things that aren't biblical and we make them spiritual. Now, having said that, let me just put a footnote on this. There's nothing wrong with traditions. And by the way, before you do away with traditions, make sure that tradition doesn't have a biblical basis because they can, right? So you don't just say, well, it's tradition we're throwing out. You say, why is the tradition the tradition? And there are some valid traditions. There are some valid traditions worth keeping. But cultural Christianity is more about Christian traditions than it is about biblical truth. And in the terms of the gospel, it doesn't see the implication of sin and separation. Number four on your outline, according to a study of U.S. adults, 80, 80% believe in God. told you that this morning. Only 56% believe in the God of the Bible. I don't need to camp there. We've been there. Number five, many people have a familiarity with church and Christian lingo. But a familiarity with the gospel is hard to find. Does that make sense? They know the lingo, the language, all right? But do they really understand what the gospel means and the implications of the gospel? Um, Number six, getting someone who thinks he's a Christian to see that he is actually not is a sensitive endeavor. In the Bible Belt, it's a sensitive endeavor because, again, you know, I I can't tell you how many times I've talked to people about Christ and asked them uh, when they met the Lord and have them say something like, oh, well, I've always known the Lord. Or I grew up in church as the answer for the gospel. And uh, the fact is that's not the gospel answer. Uh, and so it's a, it's a sensitive endeavor when you try to help someone who is... Now, you say, well, you've got to be careful because you also have to trust people's word. But listen, by their fruit, you will know them. There is evidence that a person has been saved. And I, I've heard people so abuse that verse that I just quoted. Well, who are you, you know, judge not that you be not judged. Well, that's not what Jesus is saying. When Jesus is saying, by their fruit you will know them, he says, if you look at an apple tree, it will have apples on it. When you look at an orange tree, it'll have oranges on it. When you look at a Christian tree, it'll have Christian fruit. Hello? And so Jesus wasn't saying you're being a judge. He's saying you're being an observer. Fruit is obvious on a fruit tree. Hello? And fruit should be obvious in in a a believer's life. And so uh, it is important that we uh, understand uh, what real Christianity looks like. Uh, 
I've got on there, see Matthew 7.21. I actually read Matthew 7.21 this morning at the end of my message. Remember, that's the passage where he says, and many say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, and I'll say to you, depart, I never knew you. They had, they had outward kind of uh, um, uh, works, but they had no inward relationship. And so um, getting someone to see, uh, who thinks they're a Christian, to see uh, that actually they are not is a sensitive endeavor. Chapter 2, religion without salvation. Number one, cultural Christians often select church environments where the pastor doesn't talk about sin, repentance, or the blood of Jesus, but gives a very inspiring message, always seeking not to offend. Uh, now, probably a lot of pastors like me like that, and maybe some pastors are offended by that statement. I like it because I believe it's true. Cultural Christians seek churches where they won't be disturbed by the message of the gospel. I have, uh, you know, again, I have lots of stories, but I, there's a story of uh, one man who left, and he told one of our ushers as he was leaving at the end of a service, this is many years ago, and I had preached a challenging message on the gospel, and as he left, he told one of the ushers, he said, I won't be back here. He said, I'm going to go to a place where I feel more comfortable when the preacher preaches. And they said, what do you think? I said, you kindly spiritually told them not to let the door hit them on the behind as they walk out, didn't you? Look, there, the, the truth is, that, that an environment never addresses the gospel and what it means to be saved and challenges uh, and always has a, a non-offensive message is not the whole counsel of God. Because I'm going to tell you, if you preach this book long enough, you're going to realize there are some things that are just going to uh, bend some people's screwdrivers. And, uh, and so, but cultural Christians often look for environments where they don't have to deal with that. Number two, there are two primary kinds of unsaved Christians presented in the New Testament. Uh, look at page 24, because he outlines them there. I'll give them to you here in just a second, but page 24 in particular, he, he talks about them. The first is, and this is on your outline, this is A, the wolf in sheep's clothing. And the second one is the hypocrite. The wolf in sheep's clothing and the hypocrite. Now, this is what he says on page 24 about the wolf in sheep's clothing. Jesus warned his followers to be on guard against false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravaging wolves. Buck Parson reminds Christians that false teachers creep into the church not because they look like false teachers but because they look like angels. Isn't that a good line? This is completely, I underline this in my copy, this is completely different a completely different animal than nominal Christianity. Whereas a cultural Christian might avoid serious church commitment or think it's unnecessary, the false teacher often digs deep into a, a community and can pose a serious threat to the church by manipulating and misguiding people. And then he gives us some scriptures where we're, we're warned about false teachers. So the first is a wolf in sheep's uh, clothing. And the second kind of unsaved, quote, Christian, and we use that in parenthesis, presented in the New Testament, is the hypocrite, which he talks about on page 24, uh, 24 and 25. Look at this, the hypocrite. This is a person who wears a mask of, uh, of a Christian in order to be seen and admired by others with no desire to actually follow or worship Christ. 
And in Matthew 6, 5 through 6, he, we find this person. The person is exclusively external and only concerned with having the veneer of public virtue to cover the rot of private vice. And if you look on down in under that same section there, above middle school awakening, in that paragraph, he says, cultural Christians are those who genuinely believe they are on good terms with God because of church familiarity or a generic moral code or political affiliation or a religious family heritage, all of those things. Cultural Christianity is largely based on confusion, whereas the hypocrite and the false teacher have Christianity based on deceit. All right? Number three on your outline. Cultural Christians genuinely believe they are on good terms with God, as I just said, because of their church familiarity and moral code. Okay? Just read it to you. All right? Got that down? Number four. Cultural Christians are hard to reach because they believe that they already have Christ. But it is Jesus without the gospel. They, they, they already have Christ, they believe, so why would I need to be reached? I, I believe one of, the, uh, w- one of the most difficult things in a Bible Belt area is helping people understand they're lost. Vance Habner, old uh, uh, preacher from many years ago, used to say this, I could get more people saved if I could first convince them that they're lost. Because cultural Christianity is just, it just accepts the, the um, it just accepts the status, I believe in God, therefore I'm saved. I'm all right. One of my other favorite stories, and you may through this series hear a lot of them, uh, was uh, I had been here, I don't know, I'd been here about five years as your pastor, and I went to uh, Dillard's, I believe it was, and uh, I needed a tie for something, and I went to get a tie. And I uh, picked out a tie, walked up to the counter, and the lady was working the counter. And, um, uh, and so uh, I struck up a kind conversation with her. And after a couple of moments, I said, well, by the way, I said, uh, are, you, uh, are you a Christian woman? And she said, oh, yes, I'm a, I'm a Christian woman. And I said, well, that's wonderful. I said, do you have a church, a church home? And she said, oh, yes, I do. She said, I go to that, uh, that church, that big church church. Uh, um, you know, that big brick church that, oh, I can't quite, I, I, I've just lost the, the name. I, that's where I, I go, that big church on, on I said, uh, are you talking about uh, Ridgecrest? And she said, that's it. That's the church I go to, the one that has the pastor with the white hair. I had been here five years. My pres- predecessor had five, uh, I had uh, white hair. I'm getting white hair. But I didn't, I didn't have the heart to say to her then, and this is probably, we need to talk. And I sure wasn't going to say, I'm the pastor. What do you think of my new hair? <laughs> uh, but you, you understand uh, the point um, is that um, a lot of folks are hard to reach because they already think they're reached. All right? Religion without salvation, that's chapter 2. Chapter 3, civic religion. Civic religion uh, is the small nods to God in everything from high school sporting event prayers, celebrity speeches, and American politics. 
It is the small nods to God, you know, and we pray before the game. Uh, I'm not against that, don't get me wrong, or, uh, you, but you understand, or uh, we do little nods, uh, celebrities. I want to first of all say, thank, I thank God, and I'm not knocking that. I don't think there's a, any problem with that, but often it is a reflection, not of depth, but just kind of a cultural kind of Christianity. I want to make sure I get, uh, get everything in in the right way. I, um, I, uh, was a chaplain for a high school football program in Florida for a few years, and uh, from time to time they would ask me if I would uh, open the games with prayer up in the press box with the, uh, for the whole stadium and everything. And so I did that, and then after, um, uh, after a while, um, they said, we want you to open it in prayer, but we don't want you to use the name of Jesus because we have people out here who they don't, they don't follow Jesus. You know, the kind of generic prayer, just would you do that? And I said, well, I said, you know, I, I, I can't promise you I'm not going to mention Jesus. And there's a reason I couldn't promise that because I was going to mention Jesus. And so the next time I prayed, I, I didn't try to put it in their face, but I prayed in Jesus' name. I said, thank you, Jesus, for blah, 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 keep these, these young men safe and all of those sorts of things. And it, they never asked me again. I can't understand why. But I was okay with that because prayer isn't a token nod to God. Now, listen, please don't get me wrong. Those of you who are watching online or those of you live here, don't get me wrong about something. I still think it's a great thing to pray before events and all of that, okay? But have you noticed if there's a tragedy in our country, we say, everybody pray. Or let's have a silent moment of prayer. And we even hear this now, whoever your God is, pray to your God. It's a token nod to say, see, we still honor higher things. And we have to be careful uh, when we do that, they once asked one of the great Hall of Fame baseball players who always made the sign of the cross before he, he swung, and they asked him, they said, you think that really makes any difference? He said, not if you can't hit. <laughs> well, there are a lot of folk, y'all get that when you get, get home, okay, you think about that, but that's what he said. He said, not if you can't hit, it doesn't make any <laughs> difference. The point is, it really doesn't make any difference. And uh, the fact is, Sometimes we do token kind of stuff like that, which is not really reflective of truth, but is more reflective of a kind of cultural nod to God. And, and as if, if we kind of nod to God, then that'll make God be pleased with us. Uh, number two on, on chapter th uh, three, civic religion promotes a God without any definition this is a very important statement, page 36, without any definition, with a generic faith that demands nothing of followers. Civic religion, a God without definition, a generic faith, it demands nothing of followers. Now, we see that played out all over our country and really the globe. Uh, this civic kind of religion, it's, it's okay for you to follow God, but... But let God be defined by the individual. Don't narrow the definition of God. And part of the problem in this culture today is that we have expanded the definition of 
who God is. And somebody was telling me, I think Janet Champion was telling me this coming in about something I said in the message today that reminded her of a quote that she had read recently in which a lady said, if you can figure God out, you've made God into your image. And I'm afraid that's what we've done a lot, in particular in the Bible Belt, we've created a God that, that works for us instead of, instead of transforming our life into the ways of God. So this is uh, Patrick Morley, a great men's Bible teacher and writer, said this. He said, his life changed when he discovered the God who is versus the God he wanted. This is how I want God to be. And he said that, that was for the first part of his Christian life, how he lived. He, he followed a God he wanted. So he would kind of interpret God, and he, by the way, an evangelical follower of Christ. And he would kind of create a God that was easy to follow. And he said everything changed when he said, wait a minute. I've got to follow the God who is, not the God I want him to be. Cultural Christianity kind of expands the definitions. Therefore, they don't have to face any demands and Jesus never taught that, did he? Jesus actually said, uh, the, if you want to follow me, he said, take up your cross daily. That's a demand, take up your cross daily. Now, he talked about the disciples in Acts, the early chapters of Acts, talked about uh, what it meant uh, to follow Christ. And uh, number three on your outline, he, he talks about, well, see page 37. Turn to page 37 in, in your book. He talks about a thing called moralistic therapeutic deism. Now, he didn't originate that idea. It has, been, it has become, in at least some theological circles, a, a common term to identify much of the kind of, of weak uh, Christianity we see. Moralistic therapeutic deism. It, it, and what is it? It is the cultural Christian religion of America, he says. Uh, a concept coined, top of the page, 37, a concept coined and explained by sociologists Christian Smith and Melinda Lundquist uh, Denton in their book, Soul Searching. And uh, he goes on, he quotes Al Mohler, who is a uh, Southern Baptist uh, leader for us, who identifies this as the new American religion, and its tenets can be summarized as follows. Here they are. That's why I wanted you to see this. Number one, uh, it represents a God who exists... Uh, uh, or God exists to, uh, who created and orders the world and watches over human life on earth. Kind of from a distance, you know, that's deism, all right? God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And number five, good people go to heaven when they die. And he says those concepts really explain this whole idea of, of moralist, uh, moral uh, therapeutic deism that so characterizes uh, much of the Christian faith in the world. In other words, God exists to help our life uh, uh, thrive. And uh, so we have to be real careful. with it. Number four, there's a significant difference between Jesus' admirers and Jesus' followers. Jesus' admirers and Jesus' followers. He talks about that on page 38. There's a significant difference between the two. Some are admirers of Jesus, but they're not real followers of Jesus. Unfortunately, there perhaps are more of these than we care to, uh, to, to consider that are admirers of Jesus. Um, I was sitting in a restaurant 
uh, a bunch of years ago now in downtown Birmingham, and I had uh, I made an appointment with a man uh, whom I was, uh, had been talking about the gospel to. And we're sitting in a downtown Shoney's restaurant in Birmingham, and I began to share the gospel with this man. And uh, after a few minutes, uh, there was a, an individual, uh, a young man sitting at the table next to us, and all of a sudden he gets up, he pulls his chair over to our table, and he says, hey, he said, I'm sorry to interrupt you guys, but he looks at the man I'm talking to, and he says to him, and then he points back to me, and he says, what this guy's telling, pointing to me, what he's telling you, he said, that's true. That's true stuff. He said, uh, uh, you, need to, you need to understand it. And I thought, well, praise God, you know. This guy's heard that he's a believer and he's over here. He's affirming what I'm talking to this guy about. And then he says to this guy, he says, but you know, there are all kinds of good ways. He said, Buddha's another way. And he said, Muhammad, at this time, nobody really talked about uh, Muhammad and Islam. And he said, Muhammad is a way. And he starts naming all these other religious uh, ways that he said were. To, and so I'm, I, I suddenly go from, man, this is good. This guy's affirming me to be quiet. Go back to your table or back into your hole. And, um, but, but he completely took uh, what I was saying and twisted it into just one of a lot of things. And he was sincere. He thought he was helping and, but he moved into this kind of moralistic or moral uh, 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 therapeutic deism where God is just out there and he just kind of exists for us. And so that's why Buddhism works or Hinduism works or Islam works or whatever it is. I like how he defines it here. He was an admirer of Jesus. That guy was. He wasn't a follower. Number five, self-proclaimed Christians who worship a God that requires no self-sacrifice, no obedience, no submission, and no surrender are not worshiping the God of the Bible, no matter how much they claim to love Jesus. Now find that on page 38 in your book, and you put a big circle around it. Because today we want a faith that costs us nothing. We want a faith that just makes our life work, right? that makes everything fall into place, and if we have severe trouble, then we'll, we'll really get desperate in our call to Jesus. But otherwise, Jesus just kind of make it all work, fall into place. But the fact is, a self-proclaimed Christian who, who worships a God that requires no self-sacrifice and no obedience, no submission, no surrender, they're not worshiping the God of the Bible. It doesn't matter how much they say they love Jesus. All right, number four. The last chapter we're, we're going to uh, discuss tonight, bridging the gap, bridging the gap. Number one, he talks about cultural Christians are offended to be thought of as someone who needs the gospel. They believe that Jesus died on the cross, but in a generic sense, not as a personal substitute for the sins of the individual. One of the biggest problems today in cultural Christianity is it just doesn't really believe it's a sinner. It thinks, I, yeah, I've messed up, but I know people that have messed up a whole lot worse than me. And so the standard becomes I'm comparing myself to others, and since I'm not as bad as a lot of people I know, I must be good, and God's probably pleased with me. And, uh, and cultural Christians are offended 
if you begin to talk a lot of times about personal sin, and in particular, that they're sinners. Um, and um, I, I remember when we lived in Atlanta be before I came here to be your pastor, uh, and we lived in an area called Alpharetta, and Alpharetta is an area with um, very high-end properties. And there are a lot of the professional athletes in Atlanta that live there. Now, we were not ones that lived in that kind of community, but we lived in the same area. And, um, but there were homes there that were just uh, unbelievable. And I, I remember that me and another uh, of my colleagues uh, visited a man of enormous wealth. And when I say enormous wealth... I mean more money than he could ever spend in a lifetime. And we got into a conversation about the gospel. And this is what he said. He said, you're talking about me being a sinner. And he said, but if I'm a sinner, look at all that I have. My life isn't bad. My life is wonderful. And then he said this. Why do I need God? I'm, I am no worse than a lot of people I know. In fact, I'm better than a lot of others. And I even help and give to things and all that sort of stuff. He was pointing to his works, you understand. But he said, and I want to tell you something. This house, I, we could, also I could put our house in his family room. And, and, and I'm not knocking him having a big house. I'm fine with that. But the point is... He looked at all that he had in his life, and he said, this must mean I'm doing something right. What can, and here's what he said, what can Jesus do for me that I can't do for myself? Well, right now, sometimes you and I know the answer, but right now, sometimes there are people who think, why do I really need Jesus? I, I don't feel like a sinner. That's the disconnect of a cultural Christianity from who we really are. That all of us, look, all of us are wicked. Did you know that? The Bible says that the heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? You don't even know your heart uh, the way God does. But the world measures and looks and says, well, why do I need Jesus? What's Jesus going to do for me? I'm a sinner. If this is a sinner, I, 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 I'm okay with it. I mean, that was his essential argument. So, you and I think, wow, that's pretty dangerous. But cultural Christians, and he claimed to follow God, uh, are often offended when it's suggested that they need, because they believe in some generic sense in God. Number two, cultural Christians usually believe that the only difference between you and them is that you're just a little more into Christianity, and perhaps you're just extreme with it. I had... Uh, I had a cultural Christian in my family. They were very active in church, and uh, they knew the lingo. And when God, I've told you this before, but it's a perfect illustration. When I was called into ministry, and I, I would spend hours studying my Bible in my bedroom as a teenager, and uh, this, uh, this individual in our family said to my mom, you better watch him. He's going to become a fanatic. And I did. And I am. I still am. And, but this person also said to my mom, and you know, people go crazy 
with religion. Well, that's what cultural Christianity says. It believes that the only difference between you and them is that you're just a little more into the God stuff than I am. I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. But I'm not into it to the extreme that you are. That's cultural Christianity. All right. Number three, cultural Christians have to see themselves as lost before they can actually see their need to be saved. It's just a simple fact. That's true of anyone, but cultural Christians in particular, some point, listen, one of the things that you ought to pray if you know someone that is a cultural Christian in your life, in your environment that you work in, or in your neighborhood, somebody you're thinking about, let me tell you how to pray for them. You need to pray that God will cause them to see the condition of their heart. Because the Bible says that the God of this world has blinded their eyes so that they can't see or understand the truth. Do you remember when the Apostle Paul saw, uh, before it was Paul, you remember when he uh, was saved on the road to Damascus and you remember he was blinded and the Bible says it was like scales fell from his eyes. He had been blinded to the truth. And suddenly when the Spirit of God and Christ himself showed up, it was like the scales fell. All of this time before, he had been been, uh, blinded to the truth of who Christ was. If you ever wonder why people that you pray for or people you talk to say, well, I don't know the real need for Christ. Or have you ever heard a message and thought, man, I know somebody needs to hear that. And maybe they hear it and they there's not even, they don't even make a holy grunt. And you think, how can they hear that and not get it? The way is, the reason is because their eyes have been blinded by the God of this world. And so one of the things you pray for cultural Christians, because they need to see their real condition, is God, would you cause the scales to fall from their eyes that the that the enemy has covered their eyes and blinded them with. Okay, number four, for the cultural Christian, morality is usually determined by how you are or will be perceived by others. In other words, political correctness. How how people, look, cultural Christianity, it may be needed. So I act a Christian when I want to be perceived that way by persons or or I develop a kind of cultural Christianity so I can get along just enough, you know, uh, so I'll be accepted in the right circles, but not so much that I'm rejected in other circles, how you want to be perceived. Number five, the most common belief in cultural Christianity is that good people go to heaven. I've already talked about that, so I won't stay there. And that other people are often the standard for good and bad. Good people just go to heaven, and so the goal is to be good. Surprising how many people in our churches today, if you were to press them and say, you know, uh, uh, if you were to die um, and God were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? Surprising numbers of people will say, well, because I've tried to live a good life. Uh, That's cultural Christianity. It's disconnected from the real message of the gospel. And then number six and last There are three keys to having a gospel conversation with churched and cultural Christians. Look with me, if you will, on page 52 of the book. What are the three keys? Here they are on page 52. Lovingly ask frustrating questions. All right? So if they say, well, you know, good good people, what's a standard for good? How good is good enough? How many more good deeds do you need to have than your bad deeds? And then... Who doesn't actually make it to heaven? 
All right? Those are lovingly asked frustrating questions of, of a person. Number two, ask about the Ten Commandments. There's a good chance they can name some of them, maybe one of them at least, if they're cultural Christians, and ask them how they've done in keeping the Ten Commandments and if there are any consequences for breaking them. And if not, why'd God give them to us in the first place? All right? Ask about the commandments because they'll know the, the, uh, some of the Ten Commandments, all right? And then third, cultural Christians claim a belief in Jesus Christ. They also, generally speaking, believe he died on the cross. So if good people go to heaven, why did Jesus die? If good people go to heaven and you believe in the cross and Jesus died on the cross, why did he have to do that? Is anything more confusing than a Savior dying for people who really didn't need him to die in order for them to be saved? So, so why did he die? If he didn't have to die, if good people go, then good people go regardless of his death uh, on the cross. Those are what he says, three keys to having a discussion with cultural Christians. So if you know uh, someone that, is, uh, that you are in conversation with that is reflective more of a cultural Christian, those are some, some, some areas to touch on. Now, I would always say don't pick fights. Do it lovingly and kindly. Speak the truth in love, the Bible says. But listen, speak the truth. And as I said this morning, um, in, a, in a, a world where uh, chaos uh, reigns, uh, truth uh, is uh, powerful. It's revolutionary. In fact, today for Christians, more and more it's going to be true that speaking truth in love is going to become a superpower because no one wants to offend anyone. Let's not offend. Let's not. And by the way, the goal should never be to offend. Uh, I know some people have the spiritual gift of irritation. Uh, and, um, and that's not the goal. Not, the goal is not to, to uh, bend somebody's screwdriver. But now listen, Paul did say this, that the proclamation of the gospel is an offense. Scandal in the Greek. Uh, it, it is a stumbling block. Uh, and Paul's point was everybody doesn't like it. And I will tell you, cultural Christianity doesn't like it because it, especially if it calls in them, uh, if it calls them down personally. And again, my, when I say call them down, it's not a con confrontation thing. You're a cultural Christian. And, uh, but the fact is, have discussions with cultural Christians and you might help them. Hello? Begin to think, yeah, why would Jesus have to die if just being good is good enough? You might have an opportunity there to help them into the kingdom of God. So do it lovingly. Uh, pray for the right opportunity. And, um, and, and ask the Lord to cause the scales to fall from their eyes. Okay? Does that make sense? First four chapters. Next week, we'll knock out the next four chapters. Okay? So if you want to read ahead, I would encourage you to do just that. Now, let me pray as we close. Father, thank you for our time together tonight. Uh, we pray that, uh, Lord, you'll not turn us into Pharisees with these matters. Lord, protect us from becoming the uh, cultural Christian overseers, uh, Pharisees ourselves. But at the same time, Lord, 
Uh, help us to examine our own lives. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians, examine yourself to see whether or not you're in the faith and help us to do that as well. But Lord, I pray that you'll give us uh, the ability to see our own lives for what they are. And if there are any who are watching or they are listening to us uh, by live stream or in this live audience that, that say, I'm a cultural Christian, I pray, Father, you'll quicken their hearts uh, to understand the difference in just being good for God and being saved by grace through faith. And so, Father, we ask you to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, let me just say a concluding word to those of you who are joining us by live stream. It'd be a crazy thing for me and to this live audience to talk about the gospel, right? And not say uh, uh, the gospel is about you trusting Christ as your Savior and not give you the opportunity to do that. If you've never trusted Christ or you're not sure, or you say, I'm a cultural Christian, I'm not really a born-again believer, then you can change all of that. You can change it tonight. Call out to God in your heart in this very moment. Say, Lord Jesus, thank you for loving me. Thank you for dying for me. I know I'm a sinner. No matter how good I think I am, I'm still a sinner, and that sin puts you on the cross. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. I invite you to come into my life and be my Savior Begin your transforming work of making me new in you. I receive you. I thank you. And I want you to be my Savior, Lord and Master. Now, he'll hear that prayer because he's promised to do that. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Not might be, but will be. And if you, that, if you are represented by anything that we talked about tonight, by all means, don't get offended. Instead, just get right. Just get right with God. And those of you who are watching, by the way, perhaps you say, I'd like to join this place, this Ridgecrest. Oh, one day I'm, I'm coming back to church, and you will, and you're going to need a place to come to. I hope this will be it. And you can join us by texting the word JOIN, JOIN, to 334-384-8080, 334-384-8080. I got it right. And... Uh, uh, some of you were, have had to have been in one of the services where I didn't get it right today. But, but you text that word join, or if you prayed that prayer, text the word pastor to us. We'll take it from there, but let us know. I want to join, and you can do that in this live audience. Do the same thing. Text it to us or grab one of us and say, I'd like to join, or I'd like to receive Christ, or maybe you need to be baptized, whatever it is. You grab us. We'll take it from there. We'll help you with that decision, and we'd love to have you as a part of this family um, those of you uh, who aren't, that are here, those of you who are watching by live stream, you're saying, I need a church family, and you do, and we'd love for this to be that family. So glad you've been here tonight. I think it's a good start. Uh, maybe next week, who knows, I might sing, not likely, pray that I don't, okay? But you know, if the scales fall from my voice, I might. I love you. Remember, 6 o'clock Wednesday night, Pastor's Bible Study, we're in the last days, and we started talking about America. In fact, I have to just tell you, I think last Wednesday, one of the best sessions we've had. And, but it's not too late for you to pick up on that. Six o'clock here in the uh, auditorium worship center, the last days, are we living in them? And what about America in the last days? What happens in America? So I hope to see you here Wednesday night. God bless you. Love you. You're dismissed.